Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am joined by Corey Shockey in London, England. Uh, David Sanger and Joe Cerincioni and Rosa Brooks, all in Washington, D.C., although spread out in different locations, so to make them less vulnerable to direct attack. Uh, and today I want to talk about something uplifting uh, and, and, and exciting, uh, and that's the Olympics. You know, not the, the Olympics, of course, are more than just, um, you know, the, the, the moment every four years where we learn again. Uh, what exactly good curling technique is, um, you know, although, the, you know, and, and I think that's kind of weird, by the way, because we'll sit there and go, oh, look, that guy is a really good sweeper. You know, he's really sweeping in front of that stone with really great style. Um, and and then we forget that we knew about that. Um, but, you know, there's more to the Olympics than all of that. Uh, fortunately, since curling isn't really a sport uh, any more than, say, stamp collecting is. Uh, but, and that is that these Olympics are occurring in the Koreas, and they have had this subtext of diplomatic Olympics to them that is fantastic for those of us who are, in fact, deep state radio nerds and interested in those things. And of course, the high point of this came as Kim Jong-un sent his sister to attend these events, and she was placed next to it, a variety of different events. The vice president of the United States, uh, uh, who, although he appears to be a cardboard cutout, is actually, I'm told, a real human being <laughs> named Mike Pence. And, and, and she uh, smiled and, and didn't, you know, uh, you know, vomit green stuff out of the Exorcist movie. And so everybody was like, oh, my God. David, I did not so, need that visual. <laughs> sorry. But, but you know, she, she, you know, she didn't, you know, immediately disgust everybody with the fact that, you know, she's part of a horrible regime that's killing and torturing countless people. Um, and so this was a diplomatic coup, and it put Pence in a very awkward place. And then, she reached out to the South Koreans and said, hey, let's get together. And the South Koreans didn't say no. They said, mm, maybe we'll consider this. Uh, and this, you know, Pence, because he's actually a cardboard cutout, was unable to adapt uh, and just kept saying, denuclearize, 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 didn't change his game at all. Um, and it looked like in this little diplomatic standoff, she may have won um, in any event. Uh, let's start with David Sanger, because, you know, you were the Pyongyang correspondent <laughs> of the Lake Saranac Daily News at one point or something. You were up there for some reason. Um, and, 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 and I'm just wondering, um, how, how, how do you think 
this little uh, diplomatic uh, pas de deux played out? Well, if you're the North Koreans and you're thinking about this pretty tactically, uh, I think it played out really well. I mean, first of all, um, uh, Kim Jong-un's sister showed up. We never heard her voice in public. We have no idea whether she is capable of speaking. Oh, uh, that's an interesting point. Well, you don't I, even... Right, have, you ever, have you ever heard Hope Hicks' voice in public? I mean, you see? No, they both, yeah, but they <laughs> both... They both sound like this. It's uh, really but, weird. Yeah. It's I'm very sorry, disconcerting. Jesus. Uh, but no, we did not, we did not hear from her. Uh, so uh, this was all about just the fact that she was there. And the fact that they had worked this out so that she was within 10 feet of the vice president of the United States, who appeared to completely rebuff her, not even um, shake her hand, and would not stand when the joint North Korean-South Korean uh, team entered the stadium. Um, uh, he just remained uh, in his seat. I, I thought in other sports contexts, the administration had had uh, important <laughs> thoughts about standing during anthems but but that Nothing was a but different, net, David. different different anthem different country yeah mm. um so just by being there she accomplished goal 1 which was to appear to be engaging and by uh having a vice president not talk to her he appeared not to be interested in engaging although i think behind the scenes uh, he seemed to be indicating that there were conditions in which the United States would engage in some talks. The second thing is, by doing the invitation to President Moon of South Korea to come to Pyongyang, um, she then managed to push this entire initiative beyond the uh, the calendar of the Olympics, which end at the end of February, uh, because it would be very difficult for President Moon to resume um, military exercises with the United States or do a new crackdown of some kind on uh, sanctions if he thought he was imminently going to Pyongyang. Now, he has not yet accepted the, the invitation. Thirdly, it's pretty clear that, that if he does go to Pyongyang, it won't be to discuss the nuclear program. So that leaves the U.S. and South Korea somewhat divided, where the U.S. says, look, we're only going to talk to these folks if they're willing to talk about denuclearization, which the North Koreans have said many times they won't do. And uh, you've got the South Koreans saying, well, we're going to go up and have our inter-Korean talks. And this seems to me to be a pretty brilliant short-term strategy by Kim Jong-un to make sure that the United States and South Korea stay on different pages. Well, so that sounds uh, pretty good for the North Koreans, not so good for, for the Americans. Now, Joe, I, I have actually noticed you tweeting a little bit about this. Um, <laughs> and, and, I, and I don't think you were really very enthusiastic about the way the vice president handled it. Am I mischaracterizing your view? <laughs> no, you've, you've, you've captured it precisely. But I, I haven't tweeted about curling, but I'm about to, given the way you've disparaged the sport uh, on, this, on this podcast. This is today. not a sport. <laughs> if you slide a rock it is, it's down the ice. It, it is growing by leaps and bounds, much as the audience of this podcast is. P people are... Are being drawn I think we to have it. I think we have a bigger audience than 
curling supporters. I am. I'm. I'm. And I'm, I'm taken with the sport. I'm planning to take it up in my old age. I want to be known as the bad boy of curling, as one announcer yeah. used it. And I have an idea for combining curling with figure skating, so that nice. you can actually knock out some of your opponents. Nice. <laughs> That's a good idea. Right? By the way. Imagine the ratings. Okay. No, but, curling has just Joe, become really much more interesting. Hockey, isn't yeah. it? I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to Joe's uh, audio-only curling podcast. <laughs> sweep, sweep, sweep. Draw it left, you idiot. <laughs> Yes, that's what yes. we'll do yeah. after. Okay, so back to the uh, the other stuff that was going on in Korea. <laughs> in, yeah. Well, right, uh, or let's make the transition a little smoother. <laughs> what could possibly be more boring than curling? Well, oh, yes, Mike Pence. Mike Pence. He was he was totally <laughs> outplayed by the North Koreans. I mean, this it really shouldn't have even been a contest. We're the most powerful country in the world. South Korea is our ally. North Korea is its adversary. It shouldn't have even been close. But he was totally outplayed. He wasn't even in the game. I don't think people even noticed when he left. You know, this this is and this this shows two problems. One, the problem of when your audience is an audience of one, when everything you're doing is directed at the president of the United States and not at the people you're actually with at the moment. You're hoping to please him, not your not your host and your allies. And number two, it shows the problem we have when you gut the State Department, when, you, when you've only filled one third of the appointments, including the ambassador to South Korea. There's no ambassador to South Korea. Imagine how different this might have been if Victor Cha had been there advising the vice president. My Georgetown colleague, Rose's Georgetown colleague as well, a, a conservative Republican served in the George W. Bush National Security Council, couldn't get the appointment, couldn't get cleared to be secretary uh, ambassador to South Korea. Why? Because he expressed doubts about a preemptive attack on North Korea. And apparently you can't be against a preemptive attack and get appointed to this administration in that kind of role. But as, as a result, Vice President Pence was, was clueless, not standing when the Korean team walks in. Remember, this was mostly South Koreans walking in with a handful of, of, of North Koreans in the team. Yeah. I understand. And our, and our hosts. And our hosts. I understand not shaking the hand. I, I get that. It's a big deal when a senior official shakes a hand of another senior official. I, you, you could do that. But, but, but not understanding the game that was being played here. And as a result, we're now playing catch up. So, Moon Dae, the, 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 the president of South Korea accepts the invitation conveyed um, from Kim Jong-un to go to uh, a summit with, with, with the two presidents, the two leaders at some time. And the president and the vice president of the United States is, is left flat-footed. He doesn't really have much to say on it. And he has to sort of play catch up on the plane ride home uh, in, the last, in the last few days. Uh, I, don't, I think the American policy is now dragging behind, is, uh, is not leading, is trying to sync up with South Korea. But I would say that South Korea is in the leadership right now of the uh, of the alliance strategy with North Korea. So, Corey, you know, it's you you have taught foreign policy, and um, you're a general now. You're you know the, <laughs> the deputy right. dire director general at the foreign policy you know <laughs> you know cortex of Europe. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. But wouldn't you say it's a formula for foreign policy failure to set 
an unreachable goal like denuclearization, something the North Koreans will never do, and then not try very hard to achieve it? I mean, aren't those two things? Why, yes, David, I would agree with that. <laughs> so, so, I, I'm sorry, so, so, so maybe the success of the North Koreans on this thing was abetted a bit by the fact that the U.S. position is untenable. Yes, uh, I not only think the policy is in error in its negotiation for denuclearization of North Korea, but as Joe points out, it's extraordinarily clumsy and internally contradictory. The United States should always be the people who stand up and cheer um, for athletes. This is a unified Korean team, right? We we should, I think, I think the vice president played a very strong American hand. That is, we're the people who believe in liberty and security and prosperity, and we're defending our allies against threats. And and he, like, we have a lot of good cards in this equation. And he got outplayed by the North Koreans, which, you know, that that's a, that's a hard one to lose to. The one, the one thing I wonder, though, is uh, Joe mentioned that he's playing for an audience of one. And, and I think in the vice president's case, that's clearly true. And I love David Sanger's point that it's OK uh, not to stand for an anthem at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. But somehow this is an unacceptable political statement in our own free country. Um, But I wonder how it played in South Korea, because my take, you guys probably know it better than me, but this is an ambivalent issue for the South Koreans. Um, uh, And so maybe it played well and I just don't know enough, which, by the way, is one more reason Victor Cha ought to be the ambassador to the Republic of Korea. But he's not going to be, is he? Because because of some reason, either he left or they pushed him, right? I mean, does anybody uh, have any insight into what happened there? Slow pitch to you, Sanger. I don't have uh, a real sense of what happened. The White House made up a story later on, or we think they made it up, that there was something that had come up in his um, review, in the review, which is usually of your financial issues and so forth. They wouldn't say what it is. They rarely do. But they had presented his name for approval to the South Koreans and gotten the approval. And usually that moment does not come until after you've already done a pretty thorough um, uh, review on security, on ethics, and so forth. And as we made the point, uh, he was in the Bush administration, so it's not as if he didn't already have a significant security clearance. I think this was all about his views and not really about anything else. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And the fact that he then wrote an, an op-ed for the Washington Post, making the case against a preemptive attack about how that was foolish and dangerous, uh, was seemed to underscore the point. He was not pleased that he was pulled, apparently, for that reason. So Republicans uh, holding to principles are few enough on the ground these days that I hope everyone will raise a glass to Victor Cha, who who acted with extraordinary principle and dignity in these circumstances. 
Yeah. By the way, I hope you realize that you're in a kind of golden moment, Corey, where all you conservatives with principle are loved by the left. (laughs) It'll last. That's not going to last forever. Two and a half more years, tops. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I am savoring uh, the moment, I assure you, David. Yeah, no, it's like, you know, you and Max Boot and Elliot Cohn are like, hey, I've never been this popular. You know? David Frum, oh, no. we love you David Frum. The popular yeah. on the left gets compensated for unpopularity on our in our own clubhouse, David. So I'm not sure it's a net gain. Your clubhouse? You mean John Kelly doesn't approve of you or Jared Kushner? Which one of those guys do you not do you care about? <laughs> um, so, Rosa... You know, you were there making policy in the Pentagon, and it seemed to me the Korea issue was pretty important to the United States for, say, the last mm, 50 or 60 years. (laughs) I I think I remember somebody mentioning it once or twice. (laughs) And and, and fairly recently, I recall the president suggesting we should, like, have a nuclear war with him. Is there any hint of a real policy here beyond the word denuclearization? No, I don't think there is. And that's what makes me very nervous right now. I mean, I would like to believe I cling to the belief and maybe maybe Corey or 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 Joe or David can can tell me that this belief, in fact, is not sheer fantasy. But I I cling to the belief that, you know, somewhere there are grown ups sitting in a room uh, actually doing that thing that I forget what it's called. I think it began with a D. Was it, what was it? Diplomacy. Um, uh, but I'm (laughs) don't waste your time confident that that is in fact the case. Um, no, I mean, it's always to be fair. It's always been a really hard issue. Um, the North Koreans have not exactly been, you know, model global citizens, um, in the international order. Uh, and, you know, administrations, as you say, David, for 50 years or so, have been stymied by exactly how to handle uh, the North Korean leadership. Even the Chinese, uh, who have more influence over North Korea than any other state, clearly can't quite figure out what to do because they're caught between their their own desire to ratchet down the tensions uh, uh, and by putting pressure on North Korea not to misbehave and their their anxiety about any collapse of the regime leading to massive refugee flows into China. Um, so, so, so to be fair, I don't think anybody's got some kind of great idea that would magically end this impasse and, you know, launch North Korea. I oh, shouldn't have used that word, should I? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> help North Korea become a cherished and constructive player uh, on the international stage. Um, <laughs> that being said, you know, recognizing that this is a thorny, a thorny problem that neither Republican nor Democratic administrations have have figured out how to handle terribly well. I'm pretty sure that let's just start a nuclear war and denuclearization and generally giving them the finger at the Olympics is is not going to move us forward in a good way. David, can I um, uh, make a point? The administration is caught here between two elements of its own rhetoric and assessment. 
rhetoric side is the president has said repeatedly in this first year and during the campaign that he's not going to fall into the trap that previous administrations fell into where you get into a discussion and it's not really about full denuclearization and you make some steps. He said, I'm going to solve this problem and left the impression he would solve it in the first year or two. Well, what he's headed into, if he does get into the kind of discussions that I think we all believe he's going to have to get into, is not going to be a rapid solution. And it may not be a solution at all. It may just be another holding place while the North Koreans finish their project. The second problem that he's into is that uh, Vice President Pence kept saying, we're going to keep the pressure on with maximum pressure to change North Korean behavior. Well, he's going to have to go check in with the CIA which publicly declared at an event that they had uh, at Georgetown University last uh, last fall that it was their assessment that no amount of pressure, of economic pressure, would get North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons mm-hmm. because it views its nuclear weapons as existential. And, you know, I think that's probably uh, pretty close to right, certainly uh, a view that many others uh, share. And so... We've got an administration that it has announced that it's going to stick to a policy that its own intelligence agencies have publicly declared has no chance of working. And I'm not quite sure how you go deal with that. Well, Joe, I mean, one way to deal with it is to be in complete denial about the facts. <laughs> you know, because if you don't actually <laughs> if if you don't actually admit the facts, then anything is possible. Don't you consider that to be a real creative breakthrough? <laughs> It appears to be the operating uh, methodology that this administration prefers. It's absolutely true. They create their own reality. And you heard Donald Trump in his uh, State of the Union address this year creating his own reality. He devoted 12 paragraphs to North Korea in in the State of the Union, the most on any subject. Iran, poor Iran, only got one sentence. And he seems to have been building the case for war. And this is another part of the the, the trap that, that, that they're making for themselves to use David's analysis that they're, they're, they're taking a very heavily moralized stand against the, the nature of the regime, that it's despicable, most tyrannical regime on earth. And, and that's probably true, by the way. It, it probably is. It does to horrible things to its own people. No, none of us would want to be living in, in North Korea. But then it seems to then be saying, well, we can't negotiate with a, a regime like that. You know, we have to eliminate it. And many of us have thought that the idea of a preemptive war was was posture, that it, they weren't serious about this. How could you possibly be serious about starting a war in the Korean Peninsula that that uh, our, our estimates are would, would kill millions of of South Koreans in, in the first few days of the war? How could you possibly consider doing that? But. When you are rejecting Victor Cha, an eminently qualified person to be South Korean ambassador, basically on that reason, when you hear McMaster increasingly tilting in that direction, you do start to worry that this is their preferred solution. So it makes all of us feel a lot better that this Olympic truce moment where uh, North Korea appears to have suspended any of its nuclear tests or missile tests and the U.S. and South Korea have put off military exercises that was set to, to take place in February and March for the length of the Olympics, the duration of the Olymp- Olympics, is a good pause, is a way for us to start to de-escalate this and explore the possibility of some kind of talks. Talks to do what? 
get North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons? No way. No way. That the nuclear horse left the barn a long time ago. I think you could have gotten that deal in the 90s, in the 2000s. I think Bush was a little was was close to getting that deal before the the own the infighting in that administration messed that up. But now I agree with David. They're and and the intelligence agencies. They're not going to give these up. What you want to do is stop them at this point. What Sig Hector calls add, go oops, go, I'm sorry. go ahead go ahead. I'm I'm on a rant. Go ahead go ahead. No, sorry. I just wanted to add two points in support of what you're saying, Joe. That um, one is that the administration has made an unreasonable position and then made the strategic situation much more unstable by the way they're they're going out going about carrying out their policy. So I was really surprised actually to have Bill Perry argue to me a couple of months ago that he supports the Trump administration policy because he thinks it has brought the North Koreans to the own to the negotiating table for the first time since 1999. I was slack-jawed when Bill Perry said that um, because my expectation was that he would be even more worried about miscalculation on the Korean Peninsula than I am worried given the administration's policy. He, the caveat, though, is that he said it would require President Trump to actually have an end game with the North Koreans that reassured them that we would back away from regime change that created a peace regime on the Korean Peninsula. And as I think about that, I cannot for myself, and I'd love to know whether anyone else among our constellation of smart folks on this can think of a way that we could actually adequately constrain our own freedom of action that the North Koreans would believe us that regime change isn't on the table. I can't think of anything. Therefore, I agree with Joe and David that denuclearization is is a pipe dream at this point. Well, let me, let me take it to a, a slightly different um, place. Um, uh, Rosa, one of the more remarkable things about the way this has all unfolded, and it actually started unfolding before the Olympics, was that the South Koreans began to seem to have the opinion that the U.S. was a wild card in all this, that the U.S. made them more dangerous, and that they were going to have to go their own on policy more than they have at, at, some, at, at, at almost any time in the past. And that, in fact, what you, happened here was you know, direct outreach from the North Koreans to the South Korean president. While he hasn't accepted going, he has, you know, made some cautiously optimistic sounds about this whole thing, knowing full well that the United States was rejecting this position and essentially saying, no, we're, we're going to handle this on our own. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, um, there were a whole bunch of crazy things happening in Syria with the Israelis attacking Syria as they had not in a long, long time. Uh, the kind of thing that would have heavily involved the U.S. before. Um, and although there have been some after comments by the by the State Department, and then later the White House, and while apparently on Monday the president spoke to Vladimir Putin, who is 
his main pen pal, which I find a little weird that mm-hmm. he's still, you know, the, in the midst of all of this, Putin is the <laughs> world leader he talks to most frequently on the phone. And dear Vlad, this. dear Vlad, yeah, it's so weird. But but in any event, that the U.S. was was really not a factor in any of that either, apparently, and that a lot of it unfolded um, without the kind of intervention the U.S. would have had in the past, and. The question is, are both of these things symbols of or signs of of declining <laughs> influence? Or, is that a rhetorical or, question, David? <laughs> I'm going to treat that as a rhetorical question. You could call it a rhetorical question. I would call it, um, in Corey's words, a softball out over the plate. <laughs> well, yes, and as a matter of fact, um, I'm Take pretty swing, sure Rosa. that... Uh, a brilliant columnist of my acquaintance named David Rothkopf has, has written recently um, on this very <laughs> subject. So I urge our listeners to to seek out his columns, which we will tweet to you. No, David, David, <laughs> here, of course here. you're absolutely right. Um, I, I, it, it's rather shocking. I, I think that all of us, whether we have been... Uh, generally critical of the U.S. role in the world or generally positive about it, whether we're Democrats or Republicans, whether we see ourselves as on the left or on the right. I think that virtually everyone would say, you know, a, a, a basic feature of the international order for at least the last 75 years, uh, maybe maybe the last 100 years, has been that the United States has been a a central player in in world affairs that we have been ch- troubleshooter in chief, troublemaker in chief, perhaps at times. But either way, we're we're out there. We're in, we're in the mix. We're in the middle of things. We care deeply. There is no part of the globe that is not of interest to us. Uh, you, you can call us the world's cop, whether you mean that in a in a positive way or a disparaging way. But that has been our role. Uh, and it certainly seems as though recently our, we're increasingly just AWOL, that the, our entire nation is the equivalent of poor old Mike Pence sort of sitting there looking a little confused at the Olympics in South Korea uh, <laughs> as, you know, as events just pass him by. Um, you know, that, he, that, that, always yes, looks, he always, he, he always looks, looks really confused. Right? He always he, looks a little I mean, troubled. I mean, um, he, looks, he looks kind of constipated. There's something... He's like always in a kind of low grade pain. He, like he's not David, 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 again, he the may visual. <laughs> he may just be the Dan Quayle of the Trump administration. I'm not sure the pretty face <laughs> with not a lot of going on. You remember President H.W. Bush um, uh, was fond of talking about a revival of American volunteerism and thousand points of light. And the, the joke about his administration was that it was 999 points of light and one dim bulb. <laughs> uh, oh, God. The, <laughs> I, you know, I, honest, you did not honestly, know I was going to have a Dan Quayle joke, did you? <laughs> in defense, in defense of Dan Quayle, I think I think Mike Pence makes Dan Quayle look like Oscar Wilde, which would probably make <laughs> Mike Pence really uncomfortable. But uh, although he wouldn't know why exactly, right? Um, well, <laughs> right. There are not a lot of things right that make me think of Oscar Wilde and Mike Pence in the same sentence, but, but you get the basic idea. Yeah, I don't know if there's a whole lot going on with Mike Pence, but that's, that's a whole different topic, so we'll leave that for now. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the, the fact that Israel, uh, one of our closest allies for, for more than 50 years, um, is it, engaging in the kind of military action in Syria that, according to Israel, 
Israel's recent uh, strikes inside Syria have destroyed half of the Syrian government's remaining anti-air force capabilities. This is not a little tiny thing. This is a big deal. Uh, after after Syrian forces shot down an Israeli fighter plane uh, last week, this is huge. Um, obviously, as our listeners know, this is not just an issue of are the Israelis and Assad's regime going to get into a greater conflict. Uh, the other players in, in Syria include both the Russians, uh, U.S. troops, and, of course, uh, Hezbollah, uh, Iranian proxies. This is Israel taking action that potentially risks igniting a much more serious regional conflagration. And what is the U.S. doing about this? Absolutely nothing. We're not talking about it. We're not engaging in furious shuttle diplomacy. We just seem to be AWOL. Uh, and I think you could say that, you know, going around the globe, whether you want to look at the resurgence of uh, far-right nationalism uh, and crackdowns on democratic activists in many places in Europe and Poland and Hungary and elsewhere, uh, in, in Turkey, for that matter, whether you want to look at the Koreas or whether you want to look at the Middle East, there's this curious sense that we're just we're just not playing. We've we've gone home. We're we're busy. We're distracted by our own domestic woes. We're distracted by our own crazy president. Our crazy president isn't interested in the world. Uh, and it it's pretty striking and pretty depressing. So, Joe, who are we sending to the Middle East to deal with this? I we mean, who is the master diplomat who <laughs> obviously we want to have at the center of the most sensitive issues? Well, as it turns out, the person we're sending to the Middle East next oh, no. is Mike Pence. David is allowing everybody to announce their presence with authority today. Another slow <laughs> pitch that ought to hit the bull. Yeah, so it's that exactly ought to hit the bar. I like that. But th th this is M Mike Pence is going, but he's not going to Israel. Interesting. Interesting <laughs> that you can take a bad diplomat who has no talent for it and then screw up his mission even before it starts. What, what <laughs> and make think? him a worse diplomat. <laughs> well, I really want to hear from David Sanger on, on this because I know he follows this very closely. He's concerned about this. But it's, you know, if this if John Kerry was still secretary of state, he would have been in four capitals by now uh, talking to people, trying to calm things down, because Rosa is exactly right. This, this, this is starting to get very worrisome, very troublesome with some very large military strikes going on involving our closest ally in the Middle East, uh, Israel. And by the way, the the leader of Israel is also beleaguered by investigations and political oppositions and may be indicted soon. And so therefore has his own incentives, perhaps for um, stimulating or allowing to grow a, a, a foreign crisis that could solidify his standing at home. So you can see that you know, and the, the arrows pointing in very troubling directions. I think it's completely possible that you could see a war erupt uh, a, a two-front war for Israel with Hezbollah and, and, and Syria, both of which would be backed or in, involved uh, Iran, uh, and, and the conflict in Syria would almost certainly draw in Russia. And this gets, just that scenario is a nightmare scenario that, that was hard to imagine a, a, a few years ago, but we might see it develop over the next few months. And I don't think Mike Pence is close to being c capable of tamping that down or finding some diplomatic off ramps. 
You know well, what David, I'm not this... certain. Uh, yeah, what I'm not certain of, uh, David, is whether or not the administration really wants to step in here at all for two exactly. reasons. Exactly. First, first of all, <clears throat> there is a a general uh, attitude in this administration that you know you don't go out looking for all these kinds of things. That the American absence from the stage is more a good thing than a bad thing. You heard this in the discussion that you know we would give aid only to our friends. Well. You know, our friends don't need to be influenced as much, right, as as perhaps our adversaries do. But secondly, this is an administration that also wants to go out and uh, declare to the world the degree to which Iran is a bad actor. And it has been a bad actor uh, in the region. Um, so if the Israelis can show that drone flying over uh, Israeli territory, if they can go in and redecorate uh, Iranian bases that are inside um, Syria and do it for us. I'm not sure that this is an administration that actually wants to get in the way because they actually don't believe that the Iranian, they're probably right on this, that the Iranians are willing to take the Israelis on full scale here. And that if the Israelis go in and, mm. and attack some Iranian bases inside Syria, I'm not sure this administration thinks that's an all bad thing. Well, that, let's, let's, we've got about three, four minutes here, and I'd like to sort of go around and, and, and sort of pull on one thread out of that comment, which has to do with Iran. Because I don't think we're actually going to have a nuclear war with North Korea. I don't think we're going to have a war with Korea. Um, they're not giving up their weapons. We are not going to attack them. It's not in our interest. Some, We may have stasis. There may be some other kinds of pro progress. Um, I do think the heat's going to grow on the president. And I do think the place where you're likely to stumble into something is where it's more in the interests of multiple parties to stumble into it. Mm -hmm. And and that brings us to Iran. You know, I the 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 there's a lot of hawkishness about Iran in this administration. Um they're a little frustrated with their inability to step back from the Iran nuclear deal. It's gotten a little harder even as one of the the former hawks on the Hill, Menendez, who returning to the Senate, has said he's he's likely to remain more supportive of 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 the deal. Confrontation with Iran looks like the most dangerous to me, and I just thought I'd quickly go around and 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 see whether the rest of you agree. Maybe I could start with you, Corey. I yeah I I think. Um, what is going on in Syria is the slow, uh, the slow dismembering of the state where you're going to have a Jordanian buffer zone, a Turkish buffer zone, an Iraqi buffer zone, and an Israeli buffer zone with U.S. forces participating in at least the Jordanian one uh, and the Iraqi one. And juries out on the Turkey piece of it, uh, maybe once uh, Syrian Kurds with Syrian government support uh, dust it up a little bit more with the Turks, that will help make Turkish-American uh, cooperation on the ground easier. But I, I think you are exactly right that as, as the forces all came into closer and closer 
uh, quarters as greater swaths of Syria were won or lost by the different forces. The likelihood for U.S.-Russian confrontation has gone up, the likelihood for uh, U.S.-Syrian confrontation, the likelihood for Israeli-Syrian, and the Israelis and the Russians were supposed to be deconflicting, but it doesn't look like that happened this last round. So, so yeah, I I do think the Trump administration has the aspiration of pushing back Iranian influence throughout the Middle East. The the disagreement between Qatar versus Saudi and the UAE, with Turkey coming in on Qatar's side, has made cooperation among our friends in the Middle East much more difficult. I can see the administration thinking this is an opportunity to work with the Israelis and others in southern Syria in ways that damage Iran's potential influence and that prevent a next Israel-Hezbollah war in a way that's that would be extraordinarily damaging to Israel. We just have a couple of minutes, and I'd like to go back to each of you. Joe, what is your take on this? North Korea is by far the most dangerous uh, because a, a, a bloody nose strike there, which is not supported by any of our allies, uh, would quickly lead to a conventional war that would kill hundreds of thousands and then quickly go nuclear. So we don't have any of our allies supporting a strike there. On the other hand, I think Iran and a war with Iran, a conflict with Iran is the more likely because we do have allies who want to give us uh, give Iran a bloody nose. Iran does not have nuclear weapons. It's possible that this such a conflict could be relatively contained, or at least some people think so. I, I agree with both of these takes. Uh, Rosa. I agree with both of these takes. This is this a is, rare <laughs> moment of unanimity. No, Too easy, is, this David. Is, Too easy. This is this is fatal for a podcast. Well, you know, an outbreak of agreement. Okay. All of a sudden, Everything you just said was wrong. No. Exactly, yeah. Corey. You Every lie. now and then, you just have to agree. All right, David. Let's let's turn to somebody who always upsets the apple cart. Davidson. Uh, you know. This has been a fascinating conversation that I suspect the administration is not really focused on. You know, the you don't past, think the administration listens to deep state radio? Well, I, <laughs> they listen to the part that says deep state because that fits with the with the, but you know, last week they were completely consumed in their own soap opera of of the White House. Um, this week uh, in um, celebrating the tax cut turning out a budget that has no relationship to reality, uh, though it does add plenty to the both the, def the deficit, the debt, and, uh, of course, to the defense budget. Um, and I don't think that they would send Rex Tillerson off to do what Joe suggested John Kerry would leave on his own to go do, um, because it would require them to actually come up with a broader MIDI strategy here right. that they're clearly not ready to go do it. And they've had Jared Kushner working on this now for a little over a year and they've discovered it's actually pretty difficult. Um, but, so, but, but he knows BB. Doesn't that help? He's yeah. busy with government innovation, David. Yeah. Um, and, and, and 666 so, Fifth Avenue. So BB is out. What is BB out oh, saying? BB uh, is out uh, saying that he's talking to the United States about Annexing, he's just hoping uh, not to get indicted. Yeah, well, that too. So um, 
I don't see this as an area where the administration is going to show any particular initiative. And I think the Israelis realize that and consider it a moment for them to just grab whatever advantage they can. And I think the Iranians look at it and say, um, this is their moment to make as much hay as they can in Syria because they're not going to get pushed back. Well, that's right. And I think at, at the end of the day, you know, the conversation between Trump and Putin was telling on several levels, but not the least of which is the fact that the major external power that's going to have the most say about how this plays out is Russia, not the United States, because they're the ones exactly. who are exactly they're the ones who are on the ground and 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 willing to get their hands dirty in this uh, and are also sort of more comfortable in playing with the rules of the region, which is to say alliances that aren't really alliances, not adhering to international law too closely, et cetera, et cetera. So they they gain a bit of the upper hand in all of this. Well, this has been another great and uplifting episode of Deep State Radio. Um, whereas, you know, Joe hoped at the end of the last episode to cut back on his drinking. I suspect this may have had the reverse effect. Is it five um, o'clock yet? Yeah, somewhere, Some Joe. Someplace, somewhere. Where, where Corey is, it's five o'clock. There right you now. go. Yeah, exactly. That's Absolutely. why we do. That's why we tape the episodes when we do, because Corey is always three sheets to the wind. For these things. <laughs> okay, it's sweet you think I wasn't at 8 a.m. California time when yeah, I used exactly. to be recording them from there, David. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Anyway, well, we're glad to have all of you guys together. Joe, this is your first time on or this, you know, this week, and we and we certainly hope you'll come back. We really enjoy yes. it. Yes, thank you, yeah. guys. And yeah. um, and we hope to you know have everybody else join us. You know, Deep State <laughs> Radio continues to grow by leaps and bounds. We have something like we're approaching something like fifty thousand people listening every week. Wow, um, which is you know pretty pretty good. But we want more. Yahoo! Um, thank you, Deep and, State Nerds. Uh, our our goal is to have as many listeners as there are people watching the Olympics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or at least, you know, as many as who watch cable news, which is pretty low. Well, if you talk about <laughs> curling more, maybe you'd get more. <laughs> yes. Well, exactly. And Joe, I want to see a video of you practicing your curling form. Up here, nope. Real... I don't want the visual. <laughs> yes, no. no one. No one does. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, David. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, all of you Deep State Radio nerds. Come back soon for more Deep State Radio. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.